the story begins with a famine in the house of bread. And that's precisely what's going on. You have a faithful couple and their two sons that are experiencing such famine that they go to the land of their enemies, the Moabites. And and the land of the Moabites is experiencing much bread, much food. And you see the irony with that as well. You see the conflict. You see the challenge. Israel is experiencing a famine and yet the Moabites are prospering. And that's often the case with us. We see our neighbors while we are suffering and we say, why God, why? Why do you seem to bless the wicked and curse the righteous? And that's precisely where Naomi is. She gets to Moab and her husband dies very soon after. She's left with her two sons and to make matters worse, they marry Moabite women, sealing the fate that they will never go back to Bethlehem because she could not possibly bring Moabite women back to Bethlehem. The Moabite daughter-in-laws do not have children. They are barren. (laughs) And so in the midst of this barrenness, ten years of trying to have children, they are being ostracized, they are being marginalized by the culture, and then her sons die. And she is left with these Moabite daughter-in-laws. Life was rough, and it was rough for a long time for the daughter of God, Naomi. She is the most vulnerable entity in the society and culture in which she's in. She is economically vulnerable because she has no man to provide for her and no sons to provide for her or take the place of a husband. And she is physically vulnerable. The chances and odds of her being sexually assaulted are high because she has no one to defend her. But friends, as we see in our text this morning, as as we get to the end of chapter 1, we see that she is also emotionally and spiritually vulnerable. Listen, chapter 1, verse 13. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. You hear it? Verses 20 and 21. Do not call me Naomi, but call me Mara, for the Lord Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Naomi in Hebrew means pleasant. Mara means bitter. She literally says, let's just change my name because look at my life. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Jesus says it's out of the heart that the mouth speaks and we see the heart of Naomi. She is drowning in this bitterness. She is drowning with the the hard providences of God that have met her. And she is suffering. And yet, friends, what the writer of Ruth wants us to see as we are standing up here looking down over this story, what he wants us to see is the reality that as hopeless as Ruth felt willing to even state it publicly, the hand of God is against me, God is still at work. It's unmistakable what he wants us all to see. He's not just recounting uh, Naomi's heart and her hopelessness and her bitterness for us to go, you know, kind of look at it and say, okay, well, we can drown in bitterness. No, what he wants us to see is then where when we have lost faith, When we are in the midst of circumstances that we cannot possibly imagine anything good coming from, God is mightily at work. 
We see it in Matthew 1.1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of uh, David, the son of Abraham. And it, it begins to list all those that God used to bring the line of the Messiah to bear in Bethlehem. And we read, Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Right there in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, the writer, the divine writer of the Scriptures are going back to the story of Ruth and saying, oh, don't you lose faith, don't you lose hope, people of God. Because when things feel hopeless, they are not. Because God is reigning sovereignly over your story. I love... Uh, Carolyn James's book, The Gospel of Ruth, this is what she had to say. God's purposes for humanity are riding on the shoulders of two women the world believes have lost their ability to contribute. It's so true. It seems like the people of God are done with. It, it seems like there's no hope for the people of God and for the promises of God. Because the hope of God and the promises of God are riding on two women that the culture, as they come into Bethlehem, even the Israelite women are, is that really you, Naomi? You don't even look like yourself. You look horrible, is what they were saying. And yet God is at work. Do you need to hear that this morning? Do you need to hear that? Are you in the midst of your story and you feel like, it's not going anywhere. It's pointless. Is there some bitterness in your soul against God? The writer of Ruth and God himself wants to tell you this morning, don't lose hope. Let's look at it. Let's dive in a little deeper here. The first thing I think that we can see to really get into that theme is that God is writing our story. God is writing our story. I'll never forget... Getting the call. It was on January 1st uh, in the mid-90s. My friend Mike Sartell, who was a fellow minister at that time, he and his wife Diane and their three children were driving back from Christmas vacation when um, a nurse who had worked all night fell asleep at the wheel, crossed the median, and hit them head on. Mike died instantly, and so did their youngest son who they had just allowed to get out of his seatbelt because he wanted to color, and he needed to climb in the back and get his colors. When another minister friend walked into the hospital room to tell Diane that Mike, her husband, was dead and her youngest child, the first words out of her mouth were these, God is sovereign and God is good. Dear friends, she understood in that moment. And those words, this is years ago. Years ago, and they still echo in my head. When I face tough times, God is sovereign and God is good. He is writing our story. And dear friends, I see little of that in the church today. I see little of that kind of faith that goes deep down to the root, down to the bedrock of faith, that no matter what we face, we hang on to the promises of God. God is sovereign and God is good. He is writing our story. What I see are two extremes. One is bitterness and complaining. And dear friends, there is nothing more unbecoming of the people of God than bitterness and criticism and complaining. 
Because it, what it does, it's really an, an antithetical to the gospel. It, it, it opposes everything that we believe. Because the, the gospel tells us that we were lost, that we were hopeless, and yet God sent His Son Jesus to, to live the life that we can never live. Literally, to obey the law and, and fulfill the expectations of the Almighty for us. And then he went to the cross and he died the death that we could never die in our own place. We could, because we were a dirty sacrifice. And therefore through faith we get what, what we don't deserve. Grace and love and mercy and forgiveness and a righteous standing before the Father because he got everything that we do deserve. We are adopted as sons and daughters of God. How dare we complain? How dare we live in criticism? How dare we not draw near to God in faith in tough times? I see complaining and bitterness, but I also see this unrealistic, I'm not even going to call it joy, it's happiness. It's almost saying that I, I don't have the right to lament. I don't have the right. I have to put on this persona. I have to put on this facade. Every time that I walk into the church, when somebody asks me how I'm doing, I've got to say, oh, I'm doing great. And I'm dying inside. And dear friends, there's something wrong with that. Because the Bible gives us clear command to lament. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. We are commanded to be honest about how we feel in the moment of our suffering. Have you ever been truly honest? Have you ever felt the freedom? Have you ever been to where Naomi is and says, Don't call me, call me Mara, call me bitter, because that's how I feel right now. I feel as if there's no hope. Suffering is inevitable in the life of the believer. And we've got to realize that God is the one who's writing the story. I listened to a TED Talk this week by a woman by the name of Julie Rogers. And she is in her mid-30s and she, all of her life, she says, has struggled with same-sex attraction. And she talks about being a lover of Jesus and and yet having these desires. And she talks about being committed to living a life of celibacy. She talks about how there was a period in her life when she was very bitter and she was angry at God. That she couldn't understand why she would have these desires and why she would be the one in the church as she felt marginalized, as she felt judged, as she felt um, um, despicable and as an outcast simply for struggling with these desires and seeking to struggle with them in Jesus. And yet what I see in her testimony is something beautiful, and that is a willingness to say, though I have this struggle, though I have this lot in life, praise be to my God, because He's the one writing my story. What I've been so encouraged by this week as I thought through this, and as same-sex marriage has, has been at the forefront of our news, it's really puzzled me, and not really puzzled me, it's troubled me, because here's the deal. If we look at the church of our day, how dare we isolate 
one struggle as the struggle that we're going to put in the corner as leprosy. Because if you look in the church today, who are the ones living in absolute and complete disregard of the Word of God? Is it not those who are heterosexual and saying even, well, God just wants me to be happy so I can have sex with whoever I want to have sex with? Is it not those who are single saying, well, there's no God, no way that, that God would want me to be unhappy, so surely it's okay. I mean, it feels so right. It feels so good. So, Dear friends, there is sexual brokenness everywhere, and we can't marginalize one element of sexual brokenness and think that it's any different from our own. Because if we look at the body of Christ, we're at a place where we are unwilling to submit to the lot that God has placed us in. I've got a bad marriage, therefore God wants me to be happy, therefore He must be okay with me leaving my wife. Dear friends, that's from the pit of hell. Naomi, though, understands that God is writing her story and she deals with this in the face of God. You know, it's so easy to think that when we are in tough circumstances in our lives, if we can't find a reason for it, then there must not be a reason. It's easy for us, for suffering in our own little world and suffering some evil, suffering some injustice, that if we don't see the higher purposes of God, then it's so easy to conclude that there is no purpose, therefore... I love what C.S. Lewis said. He was dealing with this as, um, as he was wrestling with this whole concept of Christianity and suffering. And he said this. He said, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could not. I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. Friends, that's true. If you're in a situation in your life and you're thinking, well, I don't see the purpose, therefore there must not be any understand, you can't live there. That only leads to bitterness. That only leads to a fist in the face of God that will not come down. What you have to understand is there is something bigger than your life. There's something bigger than your world. There's something bigger than your context. There's more at stake than just you. It's the glory of God. And He is writing your story. We see that all throughout the Scriptures. We see it in, in Joseph's life who was sold as a slave by his own brothers. And when he's delivered from that slavery and, 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 and he is exalted to a high place, the Pharaoh's wife comes in and tries to seduce him and he literally has to run out of the room naked as she is grabbing his robe. And when confronted, she lies and said he tried to seduce her and he goes to jail. And you know the story. At the end of the story, the brothers come in. He reveals himself to them. He is uh, second in command in the land, and they think he's going to kill them. But his theology of suffering comes front and center with these words. Brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That's exactly where Naomi is. 
She is going to God to do business with God. She mentions God several times, and it seems like, I mean, you almost kind of revolt. Can we do that? The Lord Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Dear friends, she's just responding to what's going on in her life. She's responding to the curse that she's experienced. It is never good for a husband to die. It is never good for two sons to die. It is never good to to face racial prejudice and to be marginalized as she was as a widow in the culture. That is never good. And it's okay to, to, to say, God has me in this lot. But I'm going to deal with it with God, not with myself. I'm not turning my face from Him, even though it feels as if God has turned His face from me. God is writing a story. Secondly, we have to go to God with our suffering. We have to go to God with our suffering. This past spring, I went into, um, I toured the new National Civil Rights Museum. I say the new National Civil Rights Museum because they spent about $48 million on it. It's unbelievable. And um, if you go in there and, um, and you go through the whole exhibit, it is overwhelming. It really is. I mean, the suffering, the pain, what literally went on, the pictures, the, uh, the, the, you know, the, the verbal accounts that are coming over the loudspeakers and uh, the pictures and all that, all that's there. But as I was becoming more and more overwhelmed in the midst of, of going through the National Civil Rights Museum, I came across this hymn written by uh, George Mason Horton in 1829. He was a slave, and he was the first African-American slave, uh, or really African-American, to be published, uh, for his poetry to be published in the South. And listen to this hymn. Again, the context was suffering. The context was untold injustice. The context was just horrendous brutality. And yet listen to the hymn that rose up, and I would say above, the injustice of the day. Rise up, my soul, and let us go up to the gospel feast. A beautiful, gird on the garment white as snow to join and be a guest. Dost thou not hear the trumpet call for thee, my soul, for thee? Not only thee, my soul, but all may rise and enter free. The beauty of those words, the beauty of them in the midst of the context, he could have been drowning in, in, in an absolute criticism, drowning in despair, or he could have been saying, oh, you know, just be happy, happy, happy all day long. But instead, he embraces the struggle and he says, but I have a feast that awaits for me. Come, my soul, to the gospel feast. And he invites everybody else to come. Do you see what he's doing? He is going to God with his suffering. He's not letting present circumstances define the posture of his heart and soul. And dear friend, you and I cannot do that either. If we have hope in Christ, then dear friends, we have hope in Christ. And we have hope in Christ right here when life falls absolutely apart. And there seems to be no hope. This is so important in our day. Uh, Dan Allender wrote a book called The Intimate Mystery. 
And in that book, he talks about the importance of good conflict in a marriage. Um, I use that book when I do premarital counseling. And um, and I ask couples how, you know, kind of what their last conflict was, and we talk through that conflict. And I'm never worried when I have a couple that tell me about their conflict. I'm always worried when I have a couple that says, oh, we've never fought. Why is that? Because you can't have real relationship without fighting. You can't. Uh, Dan Allender said this in his book. He said, conflict is the lubricant for intimacy. Dear friends, if you've never done that kind of arguing with God, if you read this and you say, whoa, a little unspiritual, I don't know about, you know, the Lord Almighty has dealt with me very bitterly. If you've never taken that kind of prayer to God, then I don't know that you really know God, that you are walking in fellowship with God, that you are having intimacy with God the Father. Because you see, He is never writing your story in that section. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm sorry. It's hard not to get to the good news. But He's rarely writing the story, if ever writing the story the way you would write it. And yet you're struggling with God. And not struggling alone. That's exactly what she's doing, Naomi. Look at chapter 1, verses 8 through 9. Look at this blessing she puts on her daughters-in-law. In the midst of everything that's happened, she says this, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. And listen to this. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. You see, she personally is struggling with God. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. And yet this is the proof that she's not turned from God. She's counting or casting a blessing on her daughters-in-law. May the Lord be kind to you, not... Oh, go back to the God of Kamosh and, and, and Moab. Go back and worship that false idol because the God of Israel is not worth it. Oh, just don't waste your time with Him. No! May the Lord, may Yahweh, may He deal graciously with you and give you peace. Isn't that beautiful? She has not lost her faith. We see this in the prayer of Jesus the night before he's crucified, Father, take this cup from me. You know, the cup in the Old Testament that he's referring to is called the cup of bitterness. So what Jesus is praying in the garden is this, take this cup of bitterness away from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. This is Naomi. Oh, it's bitter. I'm drinking the cup of bitterness, but I know that it's coming from the hand of my God, and so I drink it. We see this at the end of uh, chapter 6 of John. Jesus has laid down some tough, tough teaching. And and many of the disciples depart. Uh, They think that He is... Um, espousing or or proposing cannibalism. He says in in, in chapter 6, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no part with Him. 
And, and many of the disciples that have been following freak out and go, Whoa, all right, don't know about that. And so they leave. And then Jesus looks at him and he says to his, his disciples, So guys, are y'all going to leave me too? And oh, listen to Peter. He gets it right. Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? <laughs> you have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. He's not saying, oh, everything's just hunky-dory. He's saying, look, everything in us wants to go with them. We have no idea what you're talking about. We don't know what you're doing. But one thing we've learned is we've got nowhere else to go but you. You are the God of heaven and earth. And we trust you. Friends, you don't have to understand the purposes of God for God to have a purpose. It's a response of a true believer. And thirdly and finally, the story that God is writing, though we would never write it the way He does, is good. The story that God is writing... Though we would never write it the way he does, it's so good. I love shoot 'em up movies, violent movies. Maybe I shouldn't, I don't know, but I do. My wife loves more love stories and comedies, and I. So I've watched all the Jason Bourne movies and uh, American Sniper twice so far. I'm sure I'll watch it again. Uh, but I've also watched Pride and Prejudice and a number of other movies. And to be honest with you, if you look at the stories, they're the same in some ways. Hang with me. Because every good story has to have a character development, conflict, and some type of re- resolution. Brian Clems on his blog, The Writer's Dig, says this. Stories, every story, has an origination, an escalation of conflict, and a resolution. Of course, stories also need a vulnerable character, a setting that's integral to the narrative, meaningful choices that determine the outcome of the story, and reader empathy. But at its most basic level, a story is a transformation unveiled. Either the transformation of a situation, or most commonly, the transformation of a character. Then I love this last line. Simply put, you do not have a story until something goes wrong. Now, the writer of Ruth wants us to get above Ruth and see that there's a story going on with all of our lives. And what I think the writer of Ruth is wanting us to know is what God wants us to know, is, and that is this, don't stop engaging with the story of your life when stuff gets hard. When you're in that conflict, don't give up on God because He hadn't stopped writing. When you're in the midst of suffering, understand that God's pen is still wet and He's writing. God's fingers are on the keys and He's still going. It is not the end of the story, and especially if you feel like it is, especially if you want to give up hope, just picture in your head God writing His story. Because He is always at work. It really helps to see your life in that manner. But to live in this way, you've got to live submitting to the author. If you don't live submitting to the author, then you're going to live in bitterness and hopelessness. Naomi does this. 
she's been referred to as a female Job. And she is. I think the suffering of Naomi is worse than the suffering of Job, to be honest with you. And yet, she, um, like Job, has the same heart toward God, as we're going to see as we go along. But in chapter 1 and verse 21 of Job, after he's lost his livestock, his daughters, his sons, all those in his brother's house, this is what we read. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So how do we do this in closing? How do we trust God in the midst of hard events? How do we not shut down? How do we not get stuck in our stories when something horrible has happened to us and, 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 and we, we drown in fear and we stop taking chances and we stop building other relationships and we, how do we keep going in the story when we're bruised and battered? The cross of Jesus Christ is how. God made Him who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the very righteousness of God. We lift up Jesus, the One who has come literally to make all things new, and we say, I am willing to suffer with you, Lord Jesus. The reality is this, we're all going to suffer. Whether we reject God or embrace God, we're going to suffer. But as Christians, we must determine that we are going to suffer in faith and through the tears and through the the, the fist raised at heaven sometimes. We're going to say, where do I have to go but you, O God? Because no one has given more to me and for me. You have given me your own Son, Jesus Christ. He has lived the life. I don't even have to suffer well to be saved. He suffered perfectly, so I don't have to because He knew I wouldn't have to. He lived under the law for me. And then He died the death that I could never die. That I might be fully and perfectly accepted by You, O Father. And You're going to take me home one day. And there will be no injustice. There will be no sorrow. There will be no death. There will be no unemployment. There will be no racism. There will be no conflict between husband and wife. There will be nothing bad and all things good. Because Jesus came. Jesus died. Jesus rose. Jesus ascended to heaven and Jesus is coming back to make all things new. Do you believe that? Has that gotten in your pores? Not as it just, yeah, I could recite that, but has it gotten into your pores? You know the only way to get it into your pores is to go through suffering. There's no other way to get that. So when you are facing suffering, you say, God... Praise be to God. (laughs) Because I know you're at work. And I know you're doing something. Help me to bear up under the burden. But even if I don't, I know you're going to accomplish your purposes because you are that good. Man, the story turns in chapter 2. It starts getting good because there's circumstantial good coming. But dear friends, the story doesn't have to turn circumstantially for God to be good. Do you believe that this morning? May we draw near to Him in faith. Lord Jesus, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that even and especially in suffering, we find Christ to be sufficient. 
Thank you that even though you're not writing the story as we have written the story in our own hearts and minds, in fact, you are killing some dreams, some some long-lasting dreams, some lifelong dreams. You're killing some dreams in our hearts and minds. Help us to know that you're better than our dreams. Help us to know that your plans for us are better than our plans for us. Gird us up this morning. Help us to be single with integrity. Help us to be married with integrity. Help us to struggle with uh, our same-sex desires with integrity. Oh God, I pray that you would meet us where we are. That you would give us hope and life. And that you would make us overcomers in Christ because He has already overcome. Lord Jesus, help us to see beyond the suffering to the day when the suffering ends. You've made us for that distant land. You've made us to reach that shore. So Lord Jesus, help us to reach it faithfully. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May we respond. That's one reason I think God has commanded us to, to give and to give liberally at least 10%. Because, man, you got to trust God. <laughs> suffering, tithing is suffering sometimes. And you got to trust God that there's another land and there's another place and this is not your home. So as an act of faith and an act of trust, may we suffer well this morning in that context. Amen.